We are so blessed this morning in as much as not only many of our regular membership, certainly here in attendance, some who are sick are able to be back with us, and certainly we also are thankful for our visitors who come our way today. We trust and hope that the service will be uplifting and encouraging and will ever be that which magnifies and glorifies the name of God as we would design it here to do at the Pippin Church of Christ. It certainly is in order as we think about this season of the year to appreciate that some may be traveling this week and we wish safe journeys and travels for each and every one in that circumstance. And my family and I would wish a happy holiday season, Merry Christmas to all, not only here but you and your families as well. The lesson that I selected for us to give consideration to this morning, as you can see on the wall to my left, is entitled, After Jesus' Birth. And as we give some appreciation to that, may we introduce it or at least begin by looking at it in the following way. It is true, isn't it, that the Christmas season, this season of the year, is a certainly very exciting one for many people. There are those who, out of a genuine consideration of what Jesus did, they get excited about the thought of celebration of any matter of His life, and in that regard, they are excited about this season of the year. On the other hand, there are some, not so much due to the association with Jesus, but just due to the kindness and the love and the peacefulness and those themes that seem so prevalent at this season of the year, they are excited. There are still others excited for more mundane reasons than either of them. The retailers, no doubt, grin widely at this season of the year due to economic reasons, financial reasons, the commercialism of the season. We get the idea easily. This season touches many people's lives in a way unlike any other season of the year. Of course, the basic design that sets it forth is related to the birth of Jesus. Today, as we give some thought to the birth of Christ, we won't focus exclusively on it, but rather we will use it to focus on, as the Scriptures portray, the more meaningful matters that followed His birth. As we do that, let's begin in the following way. Looking first of all at the following set of points. I've divided the lesson into these succeeding points, and our first one is in fact this one. This Christmas season and its relationship to the Scriptures. You and I, as we read through the 27 New Testament books, as we read through the 39 Old Testament books, as we give some more deep and thorough consideration, we will discover the following. That there are many Old Testament prophecies that relate to the birth of Jesus. It was not something that just suddenly happened without warning. It wasn't of something that occurred without any prior indication from the halls of heaven that it would take place. In Isaiah 7 verse 14, that noble prophet of old declared, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. We remember it was Matthew who quoted that verbatim in Matthew 1 and applied it to the Son of God. God with us, that phrase, Emmanuel, and its meaning. Later in Micah 5 verse 2, that noble minor prophet there declared that he would be born in Bethlehem. We even knew the city in which this birth would take place. Amazingly, as one gives thought to all of that, we now readily appreciate that the New Testament, as it opens, it directly quotes those passages and affirms their fulfillment. 
It is still amazing to think that over 750 years prior to its occurrence, Isaiah said that he'd be born, said that he'd be born of a virgin, no less. And as if all that wasn't enough, we learn also some of the other features of his name. Indeed, call him Jesus. Emmanuel, meaning God with us. You'll also notice that there are two or really three primary chapters There's Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapters 1 and 2 that tell us about the occurrence of this wonderful, this tremendous event. The scene, of course, is a familiar one. The time came, of course, that Mary was pregnant. She had not known any man. She was indeed an absolute virgin. And as one gives thought to the time came that the Roman government had given the decree for an enrollment to take place, a census, if you please. And thus, being of... The family and lineage of David, it was to the city of David that they had to go. It was thus to Bethlehem. And while there, the time came that she should be delivered. And Luke 2, beginning specifically in verse number 10, remind us of what a joyous event it was. Those shepherds that were abiding in the field. And as that lovely bit of news came to them, it was they who were told, Fear not! For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And in that jubilant, tremendous event, we find that they too began the time of celebration because this was a fantastic, amazing, truly monumental event. In the verses that follow that, we quickly... Learn, though, in a way to bring that to our time today. You and I, of course, celebrate Christmas on the 25th day of December. That does cause us to at least question, is that found in the Scriptures? Do we find the indications that that is the correct and proper day for the birth of Christ? Interestingly enough, it would strongly appear the answer to be no. In fact, you'll notice as I've attempted to write, The Bible does not tell us what day of the year, for instance, that the Lord was born. It doesn't specify the 25th of December. In fact, the strong indication of the Holy Scriptures is that, in fact, His birth took place in a different season of the year. The mention of the shepherds and the other matters concerning that census that was taken, ancient Roman records indicate that it was not done in what you and I would call December. And thus, this date that you and I celebrate... We shouldn't take that to be a God-given, Holy Spirit-decreed day of the birth of Jesus. Man chose that day. And as if that isn't enough, you'll notice some of the things that should be noted about this Christmas holiday. Inasmuch as it seems so closely associated with Jesus, inasmuch as it seems so closely arrayed with the matters of Scripture, We've already learned the Bible does not specify December 25th. In fact, the Bible doesn't even use the word Christmas anywhere in the sacred text. Throughout all the 31,102 verses of the Bible, one will look in vain for the word Christmas anywhere. It is not there. That too is a word coined by the human family. And interestingly enough, even that word wasn't coined until the 11th century A.D., Over a thousand years after the writing of the New Testament, not until then was that word chosen and coined. And even then it was coined by primarily, as point two will tell us, 
those affiliated with the Catholic religion. You'll notice that the tradition associated with this holiday is again a very notable one. And so often many of us enjoy the putting up of a tree, the putting up of lights, the family get-togethers that take place, the food that we're able to enjoy. But as we make note of all in any of that, you might take note too the Catholic influence over the establishment and the celebration of Christmas is very notable. The very first mention of anything like to what you and I would call Christmas is found in 336 A.D. Again, well over 300 years after the Lord's death. It was on that occasion a kind of celebration that took place in the season that you and I would currently recognize as December. And inasmuch as it took place, it was a common Roman festival. And it soon came heavily under the influence of Catholicism and took on in the Middle Ages a role similar to what you and I would perceive in it today. As you give thought to all of that, notice what else might certainly be stated. As one gives thought to the celebration of Christmas, there are those who would ask, is it proper and is it right to celebrate Christmas? Should one who is a Christian give intent and thought to the matters related to it? Here are some verses that you and I might consider in regard to this. First of all, we would quickly note that because of the biblical silence concerning it, it would not be right to religiously celebrate it, make a worship service out of it, and use that as a substitute for one of the first day assemblies, or even in addition to one of them. That much due to the silence of the Scriptures would be a very clear conclusion. But that does not address... What about a family celebration? Can you and I in our homes, without making a worship service out of it, and without turning it into a religious festival and a religious ordinance, would it be right to observe it? To share presents between family members and put up a tree and decorate with lights? You'll notice the New Testament does give us some considerations concerning that matter. I would ask you first to notice in Galatians 4 verses 10 and 11, the inspired apostle, as he gave direction on matters related to this, he noted that they in that era were those that observed days and weeks and months and years. And he used that word observe in the sense of attaching significance for a means of celebration. It might be noted that in that passage, though, the thing is condemned because they were turning it into a religious substitute for the gospel and for the declarations of the church. In essence, they were trying to carry over Jewish Mosaic law institutions and using it in place of the New Testament church. But that isn't the only passage. In fact, you'll notice also in Romans 14.6, as well as through some of that chapter, Paul there says that if they, in a personal way, would choose to observe a feast, there is no problem with that. There are those that observe the day, and there are those who choose not to. Paul says, either way, by virtue of the person's conscience, is acceptable. So if you and I choose to have a family celebration without turning it into a religious matter, that's well and good. God has no condemnation for such. If, however, you and I personally choose not to celebrate Christmas, we would prefer not to do so, that too is entirely right in the sight of our Heavenly Father. Paul leaves that in that chapter then, does it, as a matter of expediency. 
an individual choice left to you and to me. There are other things in that chapter that fall under that same heading. It's a bit interesting to consider in Colossians 2, beginning in verse 16, how that the observances in a religious way are those things which, again, is what is condemned. Paul does not address and leaves it open to our choice for those personal, family, non-religious celebrations of things like Christmas or even other so-called holidays. These things we've discussed so far this morning have challenged us to think a bit about Christmas and a brief survey of the birth of our Savior. It is with those in mind, though, that we might now come to this next point. It is truly fascinating, isn't it, to notice that the emphasis laid upon the birth of Jesus in the Scriptures is nowhere near the entirety of all that we encounter. You noticed a moment ago I did say that there are really only about three to four chapters in the New Testament that provide details about the Lord's birth. Three to four chapters out of the total of 260 New Testament chapters. That surely indicates that the birth of our Savior, though important it was, is not the sole emphasis of life and is not the sole emphasis of doctrine either. It's as if the Holy Spirit merely indicated to us that this event happened as the prophecies asserted, but then the major matter of significance is the life that followed and what was brought about for the human family from the efforts of that life. It is with that in mind that I would ask you to consider these things with me. As I've tried to present them in the following way, the New Testament emphasis, even as early as the days of His birth, was not so much on the birth itself, but on the life that would be lived thereby. In Matthew 1.21, again, even before she gave birth, even before Mary gave birth to the baby Jesus, the angel appeared to Joseph, and it was on that occasion that the angel said, He shall save his people from their sins. The emphasis from the words of the angel there was not so much on the birth, but on the activities, the efforts, the grand benefit to the human family based on the things that he would make possible. He shall save his people from their sins. He didn't say he'll save them from Roman domination. He didn't say he'll save them from depression and anxiety. He didn't say He would save them from the terrible afflictions and oppressions of life. He said He'll save them from their sins. It was from that early stage, given the nature of His name, that would in fact be the mission of His life. Call Him Jesus. And that word means, save us, O Lord. And so it is with Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. Joseph thus knew that even before Jesus was born. And in fact, even to Mary, Gabriel also informed her that this babe that she would give birth to would in fact rest upon the throne of David. And over the house of Jacob would he reign and rule, and of his kingdom there would be no end. Luke 1, verses 30 to 33. Those matters, you see, must have been so compelling to both Mary and to Joseph. And they should still, of course, be compelling to you and to me today. To give thought to all of that challenges us to appreciate that the Lord time and again during His ministry did not refer back to His birth, 
but referred to the nature of His coming, the character of who He was and what He brought about as the Son of Man, the Son of God. Was it not to Zacchaeus that Jesus Himself said, For the Son of Man came not to seek His own, but to seek and save the lost. The lost. Those again, encumbered in sin, those are the ones that He came to save. All these passages challenge us to never forget that the fact that the Lord came is a wondrous thing, but far more wondrous it is to build one's life upon that gospel that He brought, that message of salvation that He rings so loudly and clearly, and upon the words that will lead one to eternal life in heaven. One can believe all that one wants about his birth, but if one doesn't obey the gospel, let that gospel imitate and emulate his life and give it its direction, that he still will be found lacking and wanting on that grand and final day of judgment. It is with those thoughts in mind that I would ask you to notice some of that which you and I are able to enjoy as a consequence and as a result of the coming of Jesus. This sampling will be brief, but inasmuch as we mention it, I've tried to include some of the most precious, some of the most notable, some of the most lovely things to be found in the pages of the New Testament. Some of that which you and I are able to enjoy as a result of Him. May we put it in these words, these are some gifts that God has granted us through His Son. Let's look at a listing of them. First of all, the lesson text that was read earlier this morning. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That golden text of John 3.16 is a testimony to, in fact, the great love of God testified in the reality of the coming of Jesus. The fact that He was born and the fact of who He was should forever tell us how much God loved us. He loved you and me enough to dispatch the greatest prize of heaven on our behalf. May we never think that we're unloved by God or that He does not care. The fact the Lord came tells us how much that, Jesus, that in fact God loves us and how much that Christ wishes us also to be in a right state with Him. In addition to that, you'll notice that the fact of Christ and the great blessing available through Him allows us to also appreciate the peace available from God as well. And the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. That last prepositional phrase is vital. That peace is through Christ Jesus. Without Christ, there is no peace with God. Without the agency of the Son of God and the blessings available through Him, one is not able to know that peace of God that passes understanding. And so, so far we've seen this grand joy of God's love and His peace as well manifested in the coming of the Christ. Thirdly, you might note with me that great matter of the grace of God. In 2 Timothy 2 verse 1, we notice there the statement that God's grace is manifested and seen in Christ Jesus. Again, without that gospel and without the grace, we would not appreciate the fullness of that coming. And turning that around, it works the other way. Without the coming of the Christ, you and I can never appreciate and never are we able to know God's grace. We'll completely be without it. 
What a tremendous thought. What a profound one at that. God's love, the peace of God, as well as His grace, all gifts that you and I can enjoy through the Christ. Without Jesus, we can know none of them. In the fourth place, you'll notice that that tremendous truth of both redemption and forgiveness. Paul stated that so powerfully in Ephesians 1.7, where on that occasion he said, "...in whom, that is in Christ, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins through our Lord Jesus Christ." You and I each understand certainly from the teaching of the New Testament that sin is the problem. And it's that that Christ came to save us from. And yet we have in His blood the singular message of redemption, the powerful truth of forgiveness, in which those sins can be truly forgiven, removed as if they hadn't been committed because God through Christ's blood has forgiven us of them. That word redemption has as its root word the verb redeem. We thus have been bought back. The devil owned us. He was the one whom we were serving when we were servants of sin, Romans 6, verses 13 and 14. And yet Jesus bought us back. He paid the price in order to, in fact, redeem us from the devil and put us in that glorious organization of the church. Thus, one of the great gifts, certainly, redemption, forgiveness. Sometimes the human family wishes so much to lift high the thought of starting anew. I've made a mess of my life and I just want to start completely afresh, completely anew. We should be forever thankful Jesus gives us that opportunity. We can be forgiven of those sins, whatever they may have been. Our name, in fact, can be removed out of that place in which we were going to suffer beneath the burden and the guilt of those sins. And we can be enrolled in a position in which after baptism we are forgiven of them. No more are they held against us. That still is great, great news. The ability to start anew as one obeys the gospel, arising from a watery grave to walk in newness of life, Romans 6 verse 4. And all of that still helps us see there are more gifts to come. After that one you'll notice membership in the greatest organization known to man, the church. There are truly some fine organizations on earth. None of them compare, though, to the church in its glory, in its greatness, in its mission, in that which is able to bring about, and in that which is its destiny. In Acts 2 verse 47, on that Pentecost day, we remember that there in verse 41, they that gladly received His word were in fact baptized. And then the glorious refrain of verse 47, the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. To be saved is to be in the church. Today, each of us can sing joyful songs of celebration to God, thanking Him for the church and for the character of Christ, making it possible for us to be a part of it. This congregation that meets here at Pippin, we have been blessed in many ways. We will continue, if it is the will of God, to be blessed, enjoying so many benefits from the hand of God. But each of us can be eternally thankful that since the church consists of those that are saved, to be in the church is to be saved. And today, aren't we thankful for what Christ has made possible? 
The New Testament describes that church as the ones who will inherit eternal salvation as the saints of God. And with that in mind, the next gift is now on our lips as well. That salvation, of course, directly takes us to the thought of eternal life. It likely is true that death is not the most comfortable thought. It is not the most pleasant thing to consider. Even when we understand the person who has passed from us was a member of the church and as far as we could tell was in a safe condition before God, still you and I know that we are at a loss without them. We no longer have their association in the flesh. And that brings us a tone of sadness. But may I submit to you that this great gift that Jesus brought is presented to us in 2 Timothy 1 verses 9 and 10. Christ Jesus brought immortality to light through the gospel. He did so by abolishing death. Would you think about that with me for just a moment? He brought about the character in which death is abolished. That means it's done away with. No longer does death hold the club of jurisdiction over individuals. Oh, it's true that we still die physically, and she'll do so until the end of time, but the Lord took out of it the power that it once had because we know He teaches of a resurrection. That death is not final. There's coming a day when all that in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. James 5, or rather John 5, verses 28 and 9. Is it not then true that when it says that Christ abolished death, that simply means He did not do away with physical death. For we understand that is a sentence that came from the original sin in Eden. And as such, though, He did do away with any aspect of the second death. You and I do not have to suffer that. If we do, it's because we've made that choice. Revelation 20 says the second death is reserved for those who are not, you see, in a saved condition. If we so conduct ourselves, rebelling against the offer of God, rebelling against His grace, mercy, and truth, failing to obey the gospel, we align ourselves with those who will be the recipients of the second death. But Jesus abolished death. We do not have to suffer it. That abolition of death thus brings us to mind the beauty of eternal life living forever and ever around the glorious circle throne of heaven, singing hymns of adoration and praise to God forevermore, and forever understanding the thankfulness of what Christ did for us. It will be indeed a final day on that day of judgment, when there will be those who will hear the mournful decree, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never do you. Matthew seven twenty three. There will also be those who will hear Him say, I know you not, as if they once had been known by Him, but they no longer were faithful, and hence were sentenced to everlasting, everlasting punishment. Luke 13, verses 24 and following. But there will also be those that day who will hear, Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Matthew 25, verses 21 to 24. Do we not want to be those that hear that latter refrain? Those who are joyously welcomed in, not because we deserve to be saved, but because we obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine delivered unto us, Romans 6, 17. It is with that in mind we come to the thought of salvation. We've been discussing it, but let's be more clear, even expounding a bit further. 
In Acts 4 verse 12, Peter stated on that occasion in the midst of his preaching, Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. You see, Jesus brought the possibility. In fact, shall we even say the reality of eternal life and the salvation that it goes with it? Are you in line to receive it? Have you had your name enrolled in the Lamb's book of life this very day? You might notice that the latter ones that I've listed are so encouraging. Many of us have known individuals who have trudged through this life and have endured and suffered many a difficulty. Maybe throughout life they were never blessed with great health. Maybe it seems always there was difficulties and disasters and catastrophes that clouded their way. And yet through it all they had the hope of heaven because of the reality of Jesus, the truth that He brought and the obedience to the gospel. And they knew the victory ultimately and finally was theirs. In 1 Corinthians 15, 57, Thanks be unto God which giveth us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you and I are to be victorious, it will be only through Jesus Christ our Lord. You'll notice in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14, that victory is asserted in yet a different way. He says there, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing. And as he made note of beginning the verse in that way, he ended it by saying, We are always led in triumph in Christ. Do you want to be a winner? Do I want to be a winner? Do you want to be victorious, triumphant, and joyous as you conquer? Then it is through Christ that that can be that which occurs. And in Revelation 12, verse number 11, we have one final passage in our study and consideration this morning that highlights in such a special way the benefits of Jesus. That particular passage is one that is exceedingly dramatic. It presents, in fact, the character of the dragon. We are, of course, considering Revelation, that very vivid book of imagery. But there is this dragon who is presented with such power and might and this dragon, in fact, is out to destroy the, the, the child that was born to the woman that's revealed in that chapter. And so this dragon is presented as a hateful being, one who would wish to, in fact, remove the blessing of God to destroy the child. We are, we are told who the dragon is in verses 9 and 10. It's the devil. And in the very next verse, and may we never forget it, the very next verse tells us how to overcome him. There's a three-pronged attack in Revelation 12, verse number 11. First, they overcame Him, they being the saints, Him being the dragon, they overcame Him through three things. What are they? First, the blood, the blood of, Je the blood of Christ. They, upon their confidence, trust, and belief in all that Christ brought and their absolute obedience to all of it, that is their first attack. Secondly, through the word of their testimony. The Word of God. They have placed their trust in the revelation of truth, and they have not given their credence to the whims and fancies of men. Thirdly, besides the blood and besides the Word, it says, they love not their life to the death. They viewed the things of this life inferior to what's going to happen hereafter. They knew this world was not their home. 
and thus they sojourned here in truth and in faithfulness and longed and looked forward to the reality of eternal life and all these things that Christ has made available. I might challenge each of us, as does the Bible, by asking these same things of ourselves today. The Christmas season is a fine thing in many ways, but far finer than to focus solely on Christ's birth is to ask, how do I live the rest of the year? Am I a faithful Christian and thus the recipient of all these blessings? Or do I think just giving some credence to the birth of Jesus will be enough to save me in the end? That will not happen and it will not be. Heaven waits for those that obey the Savior. Matthew, or rather Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. How does your life and mine emanate with all these thoughts today? We'll conclude our lesson with these statements. As tremendous and as miraculous a thing as was the birth of Jesus, being born of a virgin, of course, and what a great entrance into this world it was. The Bible lays the emphasis on what His life brought. His death at the cross, the church that He established, the gospel that is the testimony of Him, and the hope of heaven that He makes available and possible. Friend, today, is that latter part descriptive of your life? Is your name enrolled in the Lamb's book of life? Are you the recipient of God's love, mercy, peace, and grace? If you are, then continue to live faithfully in that regard and way. But if not, this would be a perfect opportunity, this 19th day of December, 2010, for you to make yourself right with God. If you've never rendered initial obedience to the commandments of the gospel, and thus you're still in that alien sinner category... If you know that Jesus died for you, and if you know that you're a sinner, and if you know what is involved in the gospel plan of salvation, then you know enough to where you need to come down this aisle today and let us assist you so that Christ can add you to His kingdom. You must believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of the sins in your life, Luke 13, 5. You must audibly Confess the name of Jesus as the Son of God, as witnessed in Acts 8.37. And then you must be baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38. If we could be of assistance to you in that way today, why not today? If you at some past point have become a Christian, and you walked for a while in faithful robes of arraignment before God, but you have long since perhaps failed in that regard... Today would be the perfect day to come back to your first love, Revelation 2.5. It'd be the perfect day, in fact, to reinstate yourself like that prodigal son that went astray, but he came to himself and he came back home. If you need to come back home today, realize you aren't coming to me, you aren't coming to our elders, you're coming to the Son of God, and He will gladly welcome you home upon your repentance of those sins and confession of them, Acts 8, verses 20 and following. And we would be honored to pray on your behalf. If today we could be of assistance in either of these ways, why not let that be known if you would? While together we stand and while we sing. <laughs>